Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to No Reserve, part of the Haggerty Podcast Network. We're here to help you make sense of the enthusiast car market, whether you're buying, selling, or simply watching. Now, this week, we talk about a $50,000 Toyota pickup, a super sweet Benz factory race car, Freddie Mercury's actual Rolls Royce, and even a Chevy Chevette. Wait, a Chevette? <laughs> What's that doing in there? Anyway, I'm Larry Webster. I'm editor of Haggerty Media. And I'm Dave Kinney, the publisher of the Haggerty Price Guide. All right. Between the two of us, we've got decades of experience buying, selling, and driving the cars we love. Plus, we're backed by the data of the Haggerty Valuation Tools. Hello, Dave. Hey, Larry. Let's get into it. All right. We're recording this on Wednesday, October 19th. Dave, are you still in Blimey? Yeah, I'm at. Uh, I'm in uh, the exotic wilds of Ireland right now, having a great time. Here we go. On actual vacation with my wife. So we're having a blast. Yeah, I know you're still always watching the car market. And let's just jump into our opening bid segment because the thing that's fascinating to me is this 86 Toyota pickup extra cab that's sold on Bring a Trailer. Um, you know, these Toyota pickups are mules, basically, they're work trucks. This one sold for almost 50,000 bucks, 48,000. Um, I think what you see the photos, maybe you won't be surprised. Uh, I'm still surprised at this price. Uh, how about you, Dave? Yeah, I know, but it's a Back to the Future tribute car. So, uh, you know, and it comes with a hoverboard, I should say, because that's important. Uh, it's a 166,000-mile car, uh, which in the world of Toyota Extra Cabs means it's just being broken. It is a 4x4, four, four four and it is a 5-speed. Um, you know, we carry these in the uh, price guide right now at a top of 38.4. So that means this thing busted that by Whoa. ten grand. Yeah, no kidding. I didn't um, know but the I, stock ones were worth that much. So not even yeah. that. Wow. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and this is black with tan with AC, which is also good. Um, you know, it's Marty McFly's truck. I mean, you know, obviously. And so uh, I think there are a lot of people who want to uh, get back to the future uh, in their own yeah. truck. So not only has the DeLorean market been, uh, you know, been usurped by these things, but also the Toyota pickup truck market, which is a heck of a lot bigger market. Oh my uh, but the, in the interesting thing to me was during the exact same time frame, like as in last week, a 1985, that was an 86 Toyota extra cab pickup. This is not a four by four sold for $55,000 at a Mecham sale uh, in uh, oh, Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, this also a five speed. Uh, it's only got 10 miles on the engine rebuild. And, you know, for me, that's like, ooh. I'd much rather have one with a thousand miles than with ten miles on the engine rebuild. But this one had a hoverboard, the Nike self lacing shoes, and a gray sports almanac. So this is in the weeds for Marty McFly stuff. Yeah, um, I mean this. But these, this is, well, Dave, I could just jump in. These things, I get. Yeah. I, I get it. I, somehow I don't get it, but I totally get it too. <laughs> I mean, you remember that movie? And um, in the 80s, when Marty McFly comes back from the future and everything's changed and he opens the garage and, oh, my gosh, there's this awesome pickup. And I so remember uh, wanting a Toyota pickup with these weird roll bars in the bed, which takes up a ton of space. Right. It's totally Right. And, and the, the KC lights on top, all yep, that stuff. Yep, yeah. Yep. I mean, I actually owned a 92 Toyota uh, extra cab. It had the V6. It was a stick shift. I mean, they're they're. They're so slow and you sit on the floor, you know, they're just, they, <laughs> it, it's, it's, um, you know, it's amazing how strong nostalgia is. And I think that is a theme throughout the classic car market, isn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, who doesn't want to be, I mean, nobody wants to be Biff because at this point, Biff is polishing <laughs> these things, right? So you want to be Marty McFly in this particular uh, example. And, you know, you know, we can always ref reference the Top Gear Toyota truck that, uh, you know, they tried to kill by putting it and driving it into the surf and the damn thing. It was a diesel, but it, the damn thing never stopped running. These are really, really rugged trucks. And they're, you know, they, they have a reputation. The reputation is worldwide and it's a damn good one all the way through. So they're not bad trucks. It's just hilarious to see these things with 200,000 miles selling for $55,000 or somewhere well, around but that. I mean, the trend is, is, is the eighties kids now have yep. some money. And, you know, if I can go back to that time frame and remember how much I wanted one of these trucks, just like it, just like McFly's truck, and then be able to buy it. Now, it sounds like there's a fair number of folks that think the same way. And, you know, that's why we're seeing so many of these eighties cars go up in value, isn't it? 
yeah, that's a big part of it is uh, nostalgia driven. You you do realize that you just used uh, the Huey Lewis and the News uh, single from that. Uh, you said that if you could go back in time. So good job, Larry. I appreciate that. Yeah, the, the thing, the warning on these, this car, the, the bring a trailer car is it, it, you'd really want to check out, make sure there's no hint of rust underneath that paint. Because the one I had, it, I live in Michigan. It started to rust a little bit. Maybe more than a little bit. And I ground it all off and I tried to use the coating. And, oh, man, I just pissed the rust off even more. And it came back, like, on fire. Yeah. It's all the things they say about once you see the bubble, it means real trouble in a real hurry. And I think that's the risk in these uh, 80s Toyotas truck is that they are they're, – they're very – delicate's the wrong word because you say they're very durable. But the sheet metal is very prone to rusting. I'm wondering when Toyota Heritage, if there is such a thing, is going to start uh, re- reproducing the uh, the single cab and the uh, extra cab bodies for these things. And so you can, uh, you know, just like with a Mustang or a bunch of other cars, you can buy a whole new body and start over. I wouldn't be surprised if we see it sometime. That's crazy, but it's true. Yeah, so you can consider those. I mean, I think where I'm coming, at, where I'm landing is is those two were, were, were pretty well bought. If you consider all the coolness of it, and uh, it's ten or fifteen grand above the high estimate or the high price guide value for a Toyota Extra Cab pickup, that doesn't seem like terrible money to me. Am I wrong? Yeah. Well, I think it's all you know still in that whole fun money range for people because uh, you know the good news about pickup trucks is you can always use them as a pickup truck. I mean, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna haul around all your construction debris in this thing probably, but. Uh, you know, for hauling stuff around, for, you know, getting rid of the old sofa, all that sort of stuff, uh, you know, it still can be used for that, even if it's a pretty nice truck. So uh, it has a little more value in use, as appraisers say, than, than cars do, because you can use it for other things. But so, that's uh, getting getting into the nerd weeds again. So Yeah, my Toyota pickup was so dumb. Uh, my or The way I sold it was really dumb, because what happened was, this was like four or five years ago, uh, another neighbor borrowed it, because when you got a pickup, everybody borrows it. And sure. uh, he brought it back and he said, oh, the, the window, the side window fell down in the door. I took the door skin off and I found that the, the rail that holds the glass had rusted. I was like, oh, great. Ooh, and I got sick yeah. of fixing it. So I put it up on uh, Facebook Marketplace. The rust was was so thick on the chassis that the control arms had doubled in size. So I was thinking, <laughs> who's going to buy this thing? Not, so, not in strength, but in size. In size. Right? I was like. This is one bump away from snapping in half. That's really what I thought. And I put it on for 2500 bucks in Facebook. I got inundated. There was a guy there within an hour. And he goes, "Woo! how did I get so lucky? And I was like, oh, <laughs> man, <laughs> did I blow this? Holy cow, did I blow it? But hopefully he's still out there enjoying it. Uh, speaking of the Toyota trucks, there was this um, 96 Toyota Mega Cruiser that sold on cars and bids. And this is like the Toyota version of the Hummer. And I have to admit, I did not know this existed. And it sold for a ton of money, $310,000. Dave, what is what is this thing? Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. I think that, you know, there's somebody in Toyota land going, no, don't compare it to a Hummer. I'm going to compare it to a Hummer anyway. Oh. This is a left-hand drive one, which is kind of rare. Um, and a civilian model. This wasn't a military model. I think a lot of them out there right now are RHD and they're, and they're military. So it had, did have that going for it. It does have a 4.1 liter turbo, di- turbo diesel engine with a crazy whopping 155 horsepower. Uh, this is not meant for speed. This is meant for, uh, you know, it's called a mega cruiser. Uh, it's more like a mega bruiser. Um, you know, it's an oddball. We never got them new in the States. And I think that 310,000 is a whale of a lot of money, but you know, if it makes this guy happy, we're going to, we're going to say we like it, right. We're going to pretend that we like it. Right. No, totally. There was, obviously there was a lot of people with a lot of interest in this thing and that's why it got bid up. I mean, that's the beauty of an auction, right? You're sort of the, the price is established by the people, the market. Um, I mean, the Hummer comparison is so apt. Just look at the interior where you're sitting right next to basically the engine house and your yeah. your passengers are so far away from the driver, which is just like a Hummer, which I, I drove on a couple of weeks ago and was reminded how an odd they are to drive. But what's interesting to me is that, you know, we just published some stuff on Haggerty Insider that we lowered the the, val- the price guide value for some cars. And again, this auction speaks to me that there's still 
people are still willing to spend a lot of money on their hobbies. Like they have it and they're spending it, even though interest rates are going up and the, the car market continues to be very strong in a lot of pockets. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, this is all about passion, Larry, as you and I both know. And so some guys passionate about their uh, Toyota Mega Cruiser, you know, let them have it. It's great because it's, uh, you know, it's what we do and what we enjoy and what we like. It's not my cup of tea, but I get it that it's somebody else's. It, you know, you will be the king, the absolute undisputed king of cars and coffee among the non-performance crowd. That's for sure. Wherever you show up with this, because it's such an oddball and, and, you know, even car guys like ourselves are really, I've never even seen one in the flesh. I've only seen photos yeah. of it. That's how rare it yeah. is. So, yeah. Yeah, let's hope that the new owner enjoys it. Maybe we'll see it some of these days. What um, what what caught your eye this past week? Well, this is one that you and I are just going to have to agree to disagree about. How about oh, a come a, on. Okay, yeah, it's going to happen here. A 91 Buick Riata convertible. Now, <laughs> Riatas, they don't get a lot of love. Okay, let's just let's just be nice about. Yeah, it. yeah. Tell me why. Why not? Well, yeah. <laughs> this, well all, all kinds of reasons. <laughs> but this one has 163 miles. It's a 91, which means it's not the you know the CRT screen, the one that kind of you know glowed in the dark and did everything, sang and danced until it broke, and then it never worked again. In 91, this is one of just 305 built. Okay, the, the convertibles. Now think about that. General Motors, you know. The yeah. second second largest car builder in the world at this point, I believe, may, only managed to sell or build 305 of these things. So with 163 miles in bright red with saddle leather interior, and this is the convertible. It sold for 38.5. Now they top out in the price guide at uh, about 10 grand less than that at 27.4. So we got a new high on this thing, but it's brand new. Um, some people will not like it because it doesn't have that, uh, wild, crazy, unfixable screen or yeah, I'll be corrected. I'm sure. I'm sure there are people. Wait, that fix Dave, it. Well, I got to stop you. You are not given the CRT, the love it deserves because. Okay. Okay. That was, uh, in, in the late eighties, General oh, yeah. Motors, you yeah. know, still a humongous, uh, very, uh, adept company in some ways released the first touchscreen, right? right? All the controls were via this. And I guess about an eight inch uh, touchscreen and, yep. the, you know, the graphics were pretty primitive, yep. but it was a precursor to what is common today. And, you know, I know they didn't work and they, they, they frequently flaked out, but uh, quick thing, I saw one at uh, Monterey this past summer and it worked and the guy let me try it and it was clunky. I, I could see that it didn't work right, but holy smokes. I mean, I wonder if people really knew that they were seeing the future. I don't think Le they did. Larry, that guy had a friend standing next to the car and he was controlling it remotely, you know, with his iPhone. <laughs> uh, it, it really didn't work. I know. I'm I'm kidding. But, you know, hey, for 38.5, it's a convertible. Um, it's a, you know, it's a talking piece. It has 163,000 miles. I think this was a great buy. You know, uh, again, maybe not for oh. me, but uh, I think it was an awesome buy, even though it busted the price guide by 10 grand. So there you go. Okay, let's let's talk substitution for a quick second. I mean, uh, let's give the Riata the the due it deserves. It was a beautiful shape, yep. And uh, this was at a time when you weren't quite sure what the difference was between Buick and Cadillac, right? They were both sort of going for that American luxury, very comfortable. Um, I think if it was between the Riata and let's say the Ford Thunderbird of a similar era, I, I, I'm with you. These Riatas were super cool. But now you're you're close to dollars that'll get you a really really nice three series convertible you know, and a lot of other very fetching cars. So I think, I don't know if this is, speaks to the car as much as just somebody is really geeked about having a brand new 1991 model car, right? Yeah. For that kind of money, you can get a three series with 180,000 miles on it, not, not 163 <laughs> only Sold. miles. So yeah, exactly. So yeah, I know. I mean, everybody's, you know, everybody likes different things and that's what's great about the whole car hobby. But you know, for me, this kind of said, "Hey, I, you know, I could, I could, I could daily this." There's no doubt about it. And then the value would you go can't. right you, down no, no, to zero. You couldn't. That's the problem. These, you know, we've talked about these wrapper cars. You can't even drive them. As soon yeah, as you I drive know. The, them, the value goes down as soon as you drive them. But I don't think the difference between 163 miles and eh, 4,063 miles is going to be, you know, a killer that much. But yeah, what point well taken? Point well taken. All right. All right. There's the other one that you brought up that uh, <laughs> you're going to have to explain to me, too. I mean, you're looking at odd corners of the Internet, Dave. This yeah, is a Chevette 
Tell us about it. Hey, it's not a Chevette, Larry. Let's be real <laughs> frank here. It's a Copo car. Now, for anybody who's been around for a while, you've always heard the you know the GM term, the you know, Chevrolet term, Copo, and that you know to people they automatically go to a Camaro or they go to you know something else. It's a great build that somebody dropped the four twenty seven in that wasn't available or something like that. Well, Copo stands for Central Office Production Order. And so you can have Copo taxi cabs. If your taxi cab company's buying 75 and they want them done in their colors, back in the day, they do this. Well, this was a GM employee who bought this car in 77. It's only got 4,964 miles. It's light blue with a white interior, and it sold for $16,500. Now, that's got to be some sort of record for a Chevette. I get it. We don't even <laughs> carry Chevettes in the price guide. We'll probably have to put them in there. Now. You're going to have to fix that. Uh, yeah, exactly. So uh, we'll get everybody working on that right away, sir. We'll drop everything to get the Chevettes in there. But uh, in the meantime, the funny part of it is, is that, uh, yeah, we have lived long enough that we've seen a collectible Chevette. You know, I remember I was telling you earlier, Larry, I rented one of these cars from Hertz in Fort Lauderdale took it out, went about 10 blocks, turned around and went back. And I said, Hey, this car has no brakes. And the guy at the, you know, the Hertz place said, no, that's the way they're supposed to be. And I said, that's impossible. This thing just doesn't even stop. And you know, the point was that it didn't go fast anyway. And he said, here, take another one. And he gave me the keys and I drove it around the lot. Same brakes. I mean, it was just not a great car, but yeah. Hey, whatever. Yeah. You, you, there's so much, uh, I, I know I'm poking fun at the Chevette, uh, but there's so much I find really interesting in this car story, uh, because back at that era, this is when General Motors still had so much capital, right? They could yep. do everything. Yep. And, yep. you know, there's this discussion that they saw the Japanese. They didn't see the Japanese coming, but they clearly did. Right. This was their answer to the Civic. Um, and it didn't work. Right. It was not a great car, but a lot of cars from GM in the 70s suffered from similar execution and quality problems. Another thing that's fascinating to me is just, you know, how important the design is. Because if you look at a Rabbit, which is basically the Volkswagen version of the Chevette, mm -hmm. and, you know, des designed by Gisaro, and that Rabbit is a gorgeously crisp, you know, well-styled piece of industrial design. Yep. Versus the Chevette, it just, it kind of looks like a weird Opal Cadet, kind of clumsy, <laughs> you know, almost like a shrunken gremlin. And, uh, you know, I just find it really interesting that General Motors knew they had a segment to fill. Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, you know, like the Vega before it, it just had some struggles executing, yeah. which I think they've rectified. But back then, they were still kind of a hot mess. If only they would have made a GTI Chevette, right, Larry? That would have solved everything. <laughs> uh, no, it wouldn't. Um, but, uh, you know, the other thing was that when back in the day, when you had one of these, you could walk around telling everybody you had a vet. Not a Corvette, right. but a Chevette. So, uh, Chevette. Yeah, there I bet you that go. joke got played yep. more than a few times. Oh, but more than a few. So, so Copo just simply means a special order that that GM was accommodating back in the days, right? Yeah, exactly. And then, like I said, this was an ex-GM or a current GM employee who bought this, and I, you know, I don't remember what the Copo thing was, but it could have been just a, a you know an extraordinary amount of options that weren't available, you know, with that color or in that model line or something like that. So it's basically you know, somebody pressed the override button on this thing just to, you know, have this car made. So, I mean, it's got a cool backstory. Every piece of paperwork is with the car. So we can expect to see this one at an AACA meet anytime soon, you know, going for its senior national, which it undoubtedly deserves. So it's kind of fun for, you know, for 16.5, you can own a show car. So what the heck, right? Yeah, fair enough. But I'll let you pine away for that. Thing. No, no, I no, no, move on to no, no, no. Move fast, <laughs> move fast. Let's go. <laughs> Yeah, this was another fascinating sales on Bring a Trailer. It was a 93 Honda NSX, but the big differentiator here was the special R version. Yeah. And it sold for uh, a record. It's got to be a record at $305,000, uh, or actually almost $306,000. I don't think it's Unbelievable. a record. I think that's not a record. I think they've gone for more than that. This is one of just the 483 of the first-gen R cars, and these are known as the NA1 yeah. and the NA2. Uh, you know, Acuras, and, and, and the funny thing is in other markets, they're called Hondas. They're not called Acuras everywhere. Uh, so, right. you know, it's it's basically a Honda. This one is great because it's book Brooklyn's Green Pearl with uh, black Alcantara interior and just 38,000 miles on it, which is pretty darn low miles. RHD car, 
I'm thinking that uh, I've seen one before. I've seen a couple before, and I'm thinking some of them are top 400 grand. Um, they're real special. Now, keep in mind that the price guide doesn't have the uh, the R. We just, uh, you know, we we kind of stop at the level below that because these were not U.S. delivery cars. So the price guide, if it was an NSX, it would top out somewhere around 140, something like that. So this is more than double that. Uh, it's an oddball, but it's a neat oddball and a really cool one, too. You know what this speaks to me? Uh, because the R version, it basically had the same mo- motor as the regular version. And, um, you know, the car is lighter. Yep. It had different bodywork, better seats, you know, a, a lot of stuff that was almost, I, I don't mean to be unkind, but more bolt on. And, you know, a really great NSX is just under 100 grand. So this is 3X that. What this tells me is like, if I could find a really clean Integra Type R, I would be buying those like crazy because, you know, those cars were almost mechanically totally unique from a regular um, Integra and um, maybe not as fast, maybe not as mid-engine cool, but, you know, it feels like more like a special version in terms of mechanical uniqueness. So this one is, uh, it's a little bit, I know maybe one bought, bought, sold for more, but it's it's kind of hard for me to understand. Am yeah, I making sense? Yeah. yeah, no, I get it. I get it. It's a real specialty item, I guess, is the best way to describe it. And, you know, this one, uh, you know, it is cool because it's an NSX, which a car that, you know, has really, really grown in popularity and will continue to grow in popularity. These first gen NSXs are kind of, you know, they were boats against the current. They wouldn't have, shouldn't have happened like they did. You know, they did go down in value uh, for a long, long time. And then when people realized, you know, these things were, uh, I'm going to say it to a Ferrari owner here. Um, they were Ferrari 308s made in Japan in some ways, and that meant that there was no belt service required, and they didn't break as much. Um, so, uh, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for the NSX. Yeah, they're they're brilliant cars. I owned one for a little bit, a first gen one. You know, one thing I don't know if most people understand: the first gen didn't have power steering, mm-hmm. and it was this great. The steering was a little slow in terms of you had to turn the wheel a lot to make the car rotate, but you had fantastic feel. And quick story, these are um, they're made from aluminum. It's an aluminum unibody. And it was so new back in the day, nobody really knew how to fix them. Right. And I'm only bringing that up because um, I was on a car and driver comparison test as like the lunch, the guy who got lunch. And Brock Yates spun one of these on the Ohio back roads and put it into a guardrail. And we brought it back. It was drivable. He just pranged the trunk. Uh, but I remember the estimate to fix it was twenty-two grand. Oof. And yeah, it was kind of a crazy thing. I know they figured it out by now, but it's it's easy to forget just how innovative these cars were back in the day. I so, remember when yeah. Jag went all aluminum. They had special schools for body people, and they would uh, train them specially. I mean, you know, we think of it. Hey, look, my F one hundred and fifty is almost all aluminum right now. Yeah. So I mean, change, it went sure. it went from kind of exotic into normal. So you know, that's not surprising. Yeah, the last one I wanted to talk about. This was the nineteen fifty four Cunningham C three. It sold last weekend uh, at the Broad Arrow auction. And it sold for nine hundred fifty four thousand. I think, you know, you mentioned that spot right in the range. You'd expect one of these to go. I think, you know, what strikes me about these Cunninghams, considering the history of Briggs Cunningham, they're very American, they're, they're Italian design and super rare. I just think, you know, in the classic car market, when uniqueness, story, history, you know, usability, this thing checks all the boxes and it feels like it's still a hell of a value. It's such an interesting car. And don't, you know what I mean? Don't they get better looking every year? I mean, you know. Oh, they do. You know, like 15 years ago, I thought, eh, it has such a, you know, 50s look and, you know, kind of downgrading it. And now it's like, what a cool, you know, precursor to cars of the 60s and 70s and kind of the way that, you know, the shapes happen and all that sort of stuff. And, and I love these stories about, you know, these guys who, you know, spend a billion dollars to make a million dollars as the old joke goes in the car <laughs> business. And, you know, Briggs had the money and, you know, he had the talent and he could purchase the talent that he didn't have, you know, to do all these things. And they are great American, you know, kind of non-success stories in their day that are huge success stories. Now you can't, can't take one of these anywhere without somebody just assuming that it's a little bit of an oversized Ferrari. It's got such good looks. And, uh, you know, when you see them in the flesh, they're even better looking. This one's got great colors. This was Jim Taylor's car. 
that was estimated at 950 to a million. It sold right in the middle. At, I'm sorry, from 900 to a million, sold right in the middle at 950. I think that's a little light, to be real honest with you. I was expecting this thing to, you know, get one more zero, but it's not far from that. So uh, I guess all is good in Cunningham world right now. Yeah, no, I think we're saying the same thing. It's a really good value. And I, I'm glad you brought up the design because, you know, over time, it looks like like a hot rodder uh, got a hold of it because it, it, the roof is is chopped. It almost looks like the shoulders are tall. It just has a real kind of speedy but elegant look that um, just I don't know, speaks to the period. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yep. Maybe one day I will be able to afford a Cunningham. We can hope. Um, all right, but let's switch gears. I want to move into the the cars that are going to about to be auctioned and, and what's catching our eye. And, and the thing you brought up to me, I think, is is uh, it's really hysterical. It's the 74 Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow. Why did you want to talk about this? Well, not only that, it's a right-hand drive Silver Shadow, but it was owned by some guy named Freddie Mercury, which you uh, might or might Who's not that? remember was the front man for Queen and, uh, you know, one of the superstars of his era and, uh, you know, uh, taken away from us tragically at an early age. Um, this thing is just estimated at between 20 and 30,000 great British pounds. So, you know, 20 to 30,000 pounds, that kind of tops out pretty close to 40 grand, I guess, something like that. Silver over blue leather. The warning is that it's, uh, Needs recommissioning after extended storage, which for a Rolls Royce can mean expect to spend about what you spent for the car in recommissioning. Not always, but you know those brakes do not have a habit, and the hydraulics do not have a habit of fixing themselves when they sit. Um, but what a piece of history! I mean, Freddie Mercury's. It was in the movie, um, you know, and maybe not this particular car, but it showed him at the end going to visit his parents. Uh, uh, you know, in his uh, Rolls Royce Silver Shadow. Uh, full documentation. It really was uh, Freddie Mercury's car. So we're into the whole celebrity value thing again, Larry. Yeah, I was curious because, um, you know, that that rate price range is right about what the Haggerty price guide says these cars are worth, right? Yeah, we top out at 31.4 for the uh, 74. Yeah. Um, they are among Rolls Royce's kind of, you know, the nothing special car. For a lot of people, yeah, yeah. I like them, always have, and I've owned one. I owned an 80, which was, I think, the last or second to last year. Um, you know, cool cars, but, um, you know, this is special because it will undoubtedly end up in a rock and roll museum somewhere or a rock and roll collection, one would assume, because it's Freddie Mercury's. Uh, yeah, know, and Rolls he owned Rolls. it from, yeah, he owned it from 1979 until he passed. And I think, you know, we watch these celebrity cars, right? You know, the, the, Monterey brought our auction had Sean Connery's uh, Aston Martin, right? You know, anything with uh, that was in Steve McQueen's garage definitely commands a premium. So it's a little tough. I think our range is anywhere from like 10 to 50 percent price premium for the celebrity ownership. Where do you think this one will hit? Yeah, I'm I'm not expecting this to top 100,000 great you know, uh, I keep calling them Great British Browns, just pounds, okay? Just pounds. I'm not expecting it to top 100 grand, but 50, 60, something like that wouldn't be surprising. It depends on whether there's two, uh, you know, two Freddie Mercury slash Queen fans, uh, you know, in the in the, uh, uh, in the the bidding. Uh, it could go for more. If somebody is, you know, that, that tribute guy who just always wants to have one, um, you know, or, uh, you know, has his own, uh, you know, queen tribute band, uh, it would be a great car to have, but I, I'm dying to see what this thing sells for. It's a, it's a RM Sotheby sale, uh, coming up in London. And there's another car there that, uh, we wanted to talk about too. What's that? That's the 512 M Ferrari 1995. Uh, 512 M is, I know that the people who have these don't want me to say this. The last series of the Testarossa. The M's, yeah, it's a Testarossa. Yeah, M stands for Modificata, I believe, Modified. Um, there's 75 of these U.S. delivery. Um, it's This car has won Platinum or Platino at Ferrari Club of America two times. Um, there's 501 of these built. Uh, this one has 12,500 miles. Uh, we don't carry these. These are kind of rare. We don't carry these in the price guide, but we do have the uh, uh, the the TR before this, the Testarossa before this, topping out at 418. This car will do better than that because it's an M, which is a more important car. Uh, so we're going to see what happens with this. Um, I like these cars a lot. Um, you know, really, really nicely powered, really, really enjoyable cars to drive. 
um, you know, the, the, some of the earlier, oh, they sound insane. They're so, oh yeah, my they gosh, sound great. Flat yeah. V12s. yeah, no, yeah. they, they just, you know, they, they sound good doing 30 miles an hour in first gear. I mean, they, you know, they just sound awesome that way or second gear. Um, and, and they get even better when they're, when they're on the track. So, um, another, you know, another car at the same sale, I, there is, it is price on application. So I don't know what they want or what they're looking for, but certainly 500,000 us would not surprise and more maybe twice yeah, that i mean it looks so pristine and i i always thought the testarossa got better looking as it aged you know as they tweaked it and they yep. they, they fixed some of the bumper caps and things like that I, I wish they still had the uh flip up headlights of the early cars but minor detail i think these things got started getting some real horsepower yep. and um there's such period pieces you know as we spoke about earlier that cars from the 80s are now um, real nostalgia bias for folks that are just getting into their prime earning years. So that's why you're seeing demand for something like this. So I think I'm with you. I think this is going to be a huge sale. Yeah, this is a 95. So even later than that, because this is, like you said, the last series. But, you know, I'm going to have to agree with you on this, that I think these cars get better looking all the time. If you remember 20 years ago, everybody would give you crap about owning anything related to a Testarossa, you know, cheese grater, la da 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 da, you know, whatever. Well, guess what? It was a very much a period piece for its time. Miami Vice, you know, the final season, maybe the final two seasons. I don't remember because nobody watched the final two seasons of Miami Vice, but they uh, substituted the the fake Daytona for the real uh, Testarossa. And it was, you know, it was almost like a cliche, the uh, unconstructed, uh, you know, silk suit and the uh, and the all white uh, Testarossa. Oh, don't make fun. You know you owned them. I'm sure you had the T-shirt under the jacket and you rolled up your sleeves. I know you did, Dave. What do you mean, did? I still do. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, speaking of special editions, the the car that um, I, I'm really watching this week is a 1990 Mercedes-Benz 190E 2.516 Evo 2. This is for sale on Bring a Trailer. It ends in eight days. It's already at 145000 bucks and it's going to easily double, yep. if not more. Yep. Um, these cars were built, the Mercedes-Benz 190E, it, the first ones were 2.316, and in conjunction with the Merce- with the BMW E30, these were built specifically so these cars could be raced in the Touring Car Championship in Germany. And they are, I mean, if you love fender flares, wings on four-door sedans, these cars were so killer. I love that era. Love these cars. I, I, I'm just going to have to stop and let you speak to the particulars because this thing leaves me breathless. Yeah, bit. it's sixty-one thousand miles. I mean, if you looked up under uh, Wikipedia, uh, you know, show me a picture of a uh, of an evil-looking '90s cars that you know that it looks like something that a superhero would own. This is it, and in an all black, it's absolutely this thing. I mean, it's got you know, vents, wings, all kinds of, uh, you know, design tricks on it, absolutely everywhere. They only built uh, 502 of these things. Uh, like you said, it's currently at a, a buck and a half, 145. It's going to go to 300 plus, undoubtedly. Uh, you have to know what you're looking for in these cars, and I would definitely vet everything about it to make sure that it's the right one that you want. This one really looks like the right one as well. And so far. Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean right one? You well, mean like I mean, condition just, wise or what? Yes. Condition wise, ownership wise, mm. you know, where the car spent its life. Uh, you know, these cars did not come into the United States when new. They were not legal cars. Uh, you know, the Evo 2s. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they have very, very good build quality and people really, really like them. But you're buying, you know, you're buying the history on this car as well as the car. And this one looks good. The bring a trailer community, which can be, you know, uh, really, really tight with some of these cars that they don't like. Uh, so far, they're showing the love for this one. So, uh, yeah. We can yeah, it's s- super cool. I mean, the era, this is the German version Trans Am, if you ask me. Because you remember yep. the muscle cars of the late 60s that, um, that, so they wanted to be raced in the Trans Am series. The factories gave them special performance parts because they actually had to sell them in the, in the dealers before they could race them. So that really uh, meant some of these streetcars were better performing than they would have been otherwise. And it's the same thing for these German sedans of the late 80s. Um, the, the interesting thing to me is the Evo 2 is the highest or maybe the most valuable version of this car. The base ones, you know, our friend Jason Camisa, who does those, those fantastic videos for Haggerty, mm-hmm. he has a regular 2.316 that I've driven. It's a terrific car, but they're attainable 
at a far more reasonable dollar figure than these special versions. And I think what we're speaking to is the collectors, you know, really, really want the lowest example versions that you can get. Oh yeah. Yeah. You want the, you want the one in the, you know, the best spec for a lot of people. I'd be very, very happy with uh, Jason Camiso's car. Um, I, you know, seen photos of it. I've never seen it in person, but the way he talks about it and, you know, Jason does know cars really well. And to have him put his stamp on it means a lot to me because uh, he, you know, he's a good owner and a great driver and, uh, you know, pretty darn good journalist as well. But uh, anyhow, uh, yeah, I love these things. There's never been a bad one to own in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the uh, you, you can choose whatever 190E you want. It's just that the one we're talking about here at Evo 2, pretty much top spec you're going to find. Yeah, I think it's going to be big. Speaking of Mercedes and speaking of, <laughs> let's call them Frankenstein cars that, um, you know, I love these these oddballs because I feel like you can get this one I'm about to talk about. I feel like you can get a, a lot of experience for outpaying top dollar. It's a G-Wagon, a 2002 for sale on cars and bids. And this one is super special or super weird, depending on where you sit, because it has a six liter General Motors V8 and a six-speed manual transmission. It's a totally customized thing and really wild. Um, somebody's going to get either something to pour money into every other day, or they're going to get something fully developed, super cool. Um, I'm not really sure which. You? Yeah, it's a CTSB-powered uh, 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 G-Wagon. It's the uh, G500, uh, the LS2 V8 swap. It's currently... Um, and there's a ways to go here at $9,999. It's black with black. It's got over 222,000 uh, known miles on it. And I believe uh, um, the last owner said that he'd put 4,000 more on it. Um, that's okay. The drivetrain also apparently had 170,000 miles on it. So you're not buying a new car here. Now, it did sell again, uh, or did sell last time also on Cars and Bids for 36469 in December of last year. And there is, uh, you know, uh, to me, kind of a, you know, warning, warning type of thing in here that the guy who owned it spent money on it in January, February, April, May, June, July, and August. Um, you know, every year, I mean, every month that he owned it since, uh, you know, since he probably decided to put it up for sale. Well, it's good for you. I mean, it's good for the guy who buys it, but this could be, shall we say, an interactive purchase for the next person. Okay. I, I see that, you know, somebody who's savvier than me will see all those those uh, bills and go like, oh, this thing's a money pit. Me, if I'm really into the car, I'll be like, oh, this is awesome. Somebody fixed all the problems. It's perfect. It's ready for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it could be. And, you know, you, you don't know when that, uh, you know, that that fix matrix is going to uh, is going to end. So I, you know, I don't want to speak to that, but uh, it sold thirty six four sixty nine last time around. I don't see it getting a lot more than that. Uh, it might not even make that 36. But, you know, as far as a driveway ornament, Larry, this thing would look great in anyone's driveway. Well, it's a G-Wagon, you know, man. The G-Wagons, uh, you know, they're hugely popular. I don't oh, know if yeah. you've seen that stuff about the the G63s. You know, they had a huge bubble oh, yeah. in the value. Everybody wanted one for a while, and now brand new. They're 180 grand. Um, I've, I've spent a fair amount of time in these cars, and they're really uh, – I mean, as you'd expect, they're built for off-road. They're rough. They they don't stay in their lanes. They're kind of noisy, not super comfortable. Um, so this version could get you all that style that you want for a lot cheaper. The funny thing that I would like to know, if the buyer buys it remotely, because I wouldn't go near this thing without driving it. Just looking at the photos, for example, it looks to me like the shifter is way too low. Yeah. And you're going to be reaching for it every time you got to change a gear. So all those things that, um, you know, I'd want to know before bidding on it. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, this is a fun project car for somebody. And like I said, as far as, you know, parking it, you know, you don't put this thing in the garage. You put it right outside of the garage so all your neighbors can see that you bought a G-Wagon. They're going to think you're a, uh, you know, maybe a Hollywood wannabe, maybe a uh, rapper, you know, who the hell knows. Uh, they've got quite a reputation is that, you know, there's a couple of them in my neighborhood. Every time I see them, I looked at it. Um, the, um, um, you know, the, I, I, you just can't beat it. It's just as simple as well, that for that okay. kind of money. 
you can't throw stones at somebody that wants to put this in their driveway. I mean, you got those Bentleys. I know what you do with those. You leave them outside, don't you? Oh, we have the guy dress up in the uniform and drive around the neighborhood. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. We have with the chauffeur's cap and all that. Yeah, come on. You're you're into my gig. What can I say? Yeah, I get to. All right, let's move on. We got some great questions, and I'm super interested to talk about because I I think I've got some stuff to add. Uh, Jason from Dundalk, Maryland. I used to live near there in Baltimore, by the way. Yeah. He, he says, I don't know why anyone would sell their car at auction for no reserve. Can you explain? Yeah, I think, ahead, I think Jason was doing a, you know, an Internet search and came up with the word no reserve and then wanted to ask us about it. I don't know. Hey, uh, you know, here's the thing. There are certain cars that you know are going to sell and sell well at auction. So, I mean, if you have a 300 SL Mercedes, um, you know, you know that your minimum is going to be pretty darn close to X. You know, whether that X is 800000 or a million dollars or whatever, because there's a whole bunch of people out there looking to buy them. So that's on the high end. Ford Mustang would be on the lower end. You know that if you have a Ford Mustang convertible from 66, let's say, you know it's going to be, you know, depending on the configuration and the shape and everything else, it's going to be 20000 maybe 30000 maybe even 70000 something like that. So those cars you want to put in, you might want to put in with no reserve because when people bid on no reserve cars, they know at the end of the auction, you know, when, when the last time when the mm-hmm. hammer goes down, if their hand is in the air, then they own the car. Where if you're bidding on a new, uh, no reserve car, you can get all the adrenaline pumping, you can get all the stuff done. You know, you bid $68,000 on something, you know, the, the hammer falls and they say, sorry, sir, we're passing on that car. You know, we're not selling it. We need another three grand. We need another 10 grand. You know, the, the, the seller wants more. So you've gone through all the exercise and you don't get the, uh, you know, the thrill of owning the car. That's the downside of uh, a reserve auction for, you know, for a buyer. There's all kinds of reasons to be scared, um, you know, of, of putting your car in no reserve. But if you have confidence in it, if you know the market well enough, if you've done your research, you should do pretty well. However, you know, Larry, we all know we've been in an auction. It's risky. It's risky. I mean, it's risky. It's I risky. mean, uh, from, from what I've learned being around this, you know, no reserve means you're going to take, the, like you said, the highest bid sells the car. The car is definitely going to sell. Yep. The big advantage from what I can tell is that it just creates more excitement around yep. the auction. More people will be interested in it because they know, as you said, there's going to be a finish. Yep. So how much more fun is that? So, you know, what you want in an auction is to get as many eyeballs, as many of the right eyeballs, and you want them very excited about the car. So they're going to raise their hand and bid. And that, I think, is the main reason for no reserve. If you're an auction company, right, you want no reserve. Oh, yeah. Because you want more cars to sell, right? And you want to be known as a place where cars get bought. So, uh, you know, there is the risk there. I've done it both ways. I mean, I've really gotten burned at no reserve, but I just wanted to get rid of the car. I didn't care. So, you know, yeah, yeah, pros and cons to it. Yeah, I, I think that you know, you're right. And that's something I didn't touch on. Sometimes you're just tired of the damn car. You know, I, I get yeah. it no matter what. And it's like you just you took it, you know, 800 miles to an auction somewhere or something like that. And the last thing you want to do is drag the thing home. And so, you know, OK, so I lost four grand on it. I really thought I'd make 10. Uh, you know, the, the, the difference between that is $14,000. I get it. But sometimes your first loss is your best loss. So you just go, you know, and, and, you know, you know, buck it up and, and take it and, and do it. So, uh, you know, there's all kinds of reasons that you don't want to do it. I say there's more reasons that you do want to sell it to no reserve. I'm basically a no reserve guy when I take a car to auction and I've, you are, yeah, I've lost. I've lost, believe me, but you know, it I didn't pick you as a dice roller like that, Dave. Oh yeah, Ooh, man. You're we baller. Yeah, take me to Vegas, buddy. I mean, I'm gone. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it. But yeah, there's yeah, I mean, there's your reasoning behind it. And uh, yeah. uh you know, it's not it's not for a lot of people. I get that. But uh, you know, if you Well, okay. Well, one other way to look at it, right? As we talk about all the time. You just mentioned it earlier in the show is that we're in this for the hobby. Yep. We're not in it for business. Maybe you are. Sometimes you're in it for the business. Me, I'm in it for fun. I know it's going to cost me a certain amount of money every year. I budget for it. And then the ones I sold at no reserve, it is a fun ride, you know, because you really don't know. And there's this whole mystery to it. And you're hoping it's going to do and you get to watch it. And so anyway, maybe, Jason, if that's a way to think about it, um, I hope it enhances your overall experience. Um, Okay. Celeste from Austin, Texas. Uh, This is probably a question we get often, and she wants to know, how do I choose where and with whom to auction her MGA with? 
Yeah. And the MGA, right? That's the uh, late 50s precursor to the MGB. Yep. Beautiful, beautiful little car. But as we talked about, you know, the MGTD is worth, what do we say, 20000 And it's going to be worth 20000 for yeah. the foreseeable future. Yeah, except, right? except for exceptional cars and, you know, crazy histories right. and things like that. Yeah. And the MGA, you know, there's a whole bunch of variations. There's scoops, there's convertibles, there's this twin cam. Mm. You know, we did see one that was... I think we had one a while ago that was LS swap as well. I what I don't think it was LS swap, but it did have some American V8 in it, which is crazy. Which is crazy. I know. Yeah, we do. Let's just do a session called Dave. Uh, Dave, listen, you got to remember, a small block makes everything better. Oh yeah, it always does. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, get that Austin Mini and put a uh, put an LS in it. Uh, but anyhow, uh, yeah, this is the perennial question. I mean, everybody asks this now. So the advantage of doing a uh, a sale, you know, uh, like an online sale is that there's no transportation costs. It's the transportation is cost is borne by the seller. So instead of, like I just said, driving your car, or taking your car 800 miles to the, uh, you know, to the auction, you know, for me, that might be like Indianapolis, something like that, because I live outside of D.C., a little bit less than that, actually. But uh, um, uh, so you don't have that expense. But, you know, there's certain auction companies that aren't going to want your car. Uh, there's certain ones that will. Mm. An MGA, unless it's a special car, is probably not going to go to a Highline catalog sale. It's not going to be at a, you know, a uh, an RM, a Broad Arrow, a uh, a Gooding auction, unless it's an exceptional car, has an exceptional history, yeah. or was just a like a really really beautiful, um, you know, uh, no dollars spared uh, spared restoration. Um, so, I mean, that limits that on that end, um, you know, from, from her standpoint, I, I would kind of look into seeing what was local. Uh, she was in Austin. So there's a couple of, uh, you know, of course, you know, Texas is it, 600 miles from one place to the another place. Cause it's so darn big, but, uh, you might want to look for something coming up that would be local. Uh, if you wanted yeah. to take it to a, uh, you know, to an in-person auction. Uh, but that, well, go ahead. I, I don't mean to interrupt. I mean, where my head's going on this, I the, the beauty of the auction is you don't have months and uh, potentially many months of tire kickers showing up to look at your car, yep. right? Yep. The selling process is over in a fixed amount of time. But uh, for an MGA, this one feels to me, and I want to run this by you, Dave. I don't know if I it's an auction type car, unless there's something really neat about it. I feel like it's more like I'd be reaching out to the MGA, MG clubs or the British clubs and trying to find a buyer that way versus a general audience. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, you know, the, the, her question was basically, you know, where to auction it. My, my question yeah, should have been, yeah. why would you want to auction it? Maybe you can just sell it locally. Like, I think your suggestion is fantastic. Talk to club members, you know, uh, get their advice. Don't always take their advice because a lot of times it's like, oh, Freddie's looking for one of these. And, you know, he's got $600 right. burning a hole in his pocket, even though it's worth a lot more than that. So you kind of want to be a little bit worried about that. But I think do your research, do your homework on something like that. This might be a car for, uh, you know, uh, uh, Haggerty Marketplace or, uh, you know, maybe you might want to yeah, put it right. on eBay or you might want to put it on Craigslist. I don't, I'm not a Craigslist guy anymore, but, uh, you know, you might want to do it locally that way and put up with a couple of weekends of tire kickers. Or you could hire somebody to do it for you. Almost every town has somebody who will, uh, um, you know, if, if you go to the garage that you have your car serviced at or the people who service it, they might do it for you. They might know somebody who will do it for you. We'll sell it for a percentage, maybe like, you know, 10% or 7% or something like that. And that might be your best way to go because you don't get involved in it. And the person who's doing it might have a little more experience in dealing with, uh, you know, as you said, the tire kickers and the serious buyers and separating one from another. So you don't know. Yeah. Something I've noticed in the past couple of years, and I think it speaks to how strong the market is, the, the number I've sold maybe half a dozen cars. Yeah, but you and, give them away, Larry. You just told us. You, <laughs> maybe that's you, the deal. Either way, no wonder they sell <laughs> maybe, so. Okay, maybe that explains why, you know, I'm a buy high, sell low kind of guy, Dave. That's just that's just the way I'm built. But maybe that's why uh, what I say is the number of tire kickers, most people that have shown up uh, have bought the cars first time. And um, I, I think that's because I, I do present them very honestly. And like you said, I'm not looking to squeeze every dollar out of it. I feel like, okay, um, you know, it might cost me a little bit and I want to move on. But that all said, it, it does seem that it does speak to the strength of the market and how the demand is there. 
because a lot of folks aren't, they're thinking that, well, if I don't buy it now, somebody else is going to. Yeah. Yeah. And they jump on it. So I'm, I guess I'm speaking more to the, the idea of searching out for the clubs. And like you said, the Haggerty classifies as a way to sell this car maybe better than an auction or at least to try. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to disagree on that one. I, I think that, uh, you know, unless there's something ultra, you know, uber special about her car, you know, something along those lines, then yeah, just go ahead and, and make a plan and execute the plan. I think, like you said, Haggerty marketplace, uh, you know, any place that you can get it in front of, front of a bunch of eyeballs for very cheap money and, uh, you know, take lots of pictures. That's real important these days. People now expect, you know, yeah, back in my day, they want, you know, three pictures were the, uh, you know, were the, you know, was that that was spending a lot of money? Now three hundred doesn't seem to be enough. So, oh, Dave, who are you kidding? They didn't have cameras back then. We know. I know. Come we on. no. We had potatoes. We used potatoes, and we took photos <laughs> with potatoes, and then we send them to some place for special processing, and then a few weeks later, we get back this grainy image that looks something like a car. Yeah, I know. Yeah, right. The dinosaurs helped us with the processing. Yeah, there you go. You were good. Yeah. You you had your you had your ways. Yeah. Well, it's been a, a really fascinating week, Dave. Do you have any final comments, or maybe actually, let me go first yeah. because I think what I wanted to speak to is is what we continue to see. There is some softening in some parts of the classic car market, but it still remains quite robust, in my opinion. Even though we see these macroeconomic trends of higher interest rates, you know, maybe housing sales starting to soften because of that. I don't see any big like, uh-oh, correction right now. Uh, do you? Yeah, I don't think so for, the, you know, for the, the either the fun cars or the real expensive cars so far. I think that, you know, what happens is, you know, when the economy gets tight for the last 20 years, what we've seen is that people put their money more into collector cars, which is Wow. Great for us. Don't get me wrong, but sometimes a little counterintuitive and a little confusing. Um, you know, we have some great stuff in the Haggerty Insider that uh, is coming out in the next couple of weeks. I know that uh, I've seen some of the articles coming up, and I think that that's the thing to do if you don't subscribe to this uh, Insider, which is free and comes out every Sunday. I would definitely go to Haggerty and sign up for that because um, that's going to give you a lot of information about the market. But as you know, as my dad, who you know was a pretty smart guy once told me, you know, it's great to say that you're fighting against this and you're fighting against that and the economy's bad or whatever, but it only takes one person to buy a car. It only takes one person when you're selling mm. it. So, oh. I mean, you, you, there's that person out there. You might have to lower your that. expectations, but all you need is one. You don't need a million. You oh, my gosh. Spoken, spoken with the optimism of a true car sales. There you but, go. Uh, thanks for bringing up Insider. Uh, it's insider.haggerty.com. Yep. We publish many things every day um, speaking about the classic car market. And as Dave mentioned, there is a free weekly newsletter you can sign up for. And the best stuff of the week will be delivered to your inbox automatically. Well, Dave, it was great to speak with you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please leave us your questions in the comments. We definitely want to hear from you. Your feedback is most welcome. We will, we will catch you next week on No Reserve. Take care.